the nonprofit MBA purpose is to provide new business insights and fresh creative ideas for executive directors and their teams that will help them improve their organization. Here is your host, Stephen Halasnik. Welcome, everyone. My name is Stephen Halasnik, and I am co-founder and managing partner of Financing Solutions. Financing Solutions is the leading provider of lines of credit to small nonprofits. If 2020 has taught us anything, it is that it's a good idea to have a backup plan in place, and our line of credit program is a great backup plan that is easy, uh, inexpensive, and costs nothing until used, making it a great cash backup plan for your nonprofit. If you would like to learn more about the program, please visit us at nonprofitmbapodcast.com. And if you decide to apply today, we will even give you a $250 credit on file. Or feel free to give us a call at 862-207-4118. Today, I am excited to be speaking with Tim Kaczyriak from Next After. Tim is the founder and chief information and optimization officer for Next After, a fundraising research lab consultancy and training institute that works with charities, nonprofits, and NGOs. A nonprofit thought leader, Tim has authored the book, Optimize Your Fundraising, the books, Optimizing Your Fundraising, the online fundraising scorecard, Why Should I Give to You, the Nonprofit Value Proposition Index Study, and the mid-level donor crisis. Tim has trained organizations in fundraising optimization around the world and is a frequent speaker at international nonprofit conferences. Tim will dive into the question, what makes people give? It's a question that he's obsessed over for more than a decade. And it's what has led him to develop the world's largest digital fundraising research lab. Through the course of performing over 2,500 fundraising experiments, Tim has learned a few simple yet profound truths, the number one being giving is an irrational decision. It doesn't make sense. So Tim, welcome to today's Nonprofit MBA podcast. Awesome, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Happy to so be let here. Me say, I'm glad you're here. I want to say your last name again because I have a, I know I botched it. Kachiriak. <laughs> Kachiriak. Yeah. It's uh, – it's scary, but it's phonetic. Well, my last name is scary too, but it's phonetic as well. So I get it. Um, I, 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 I actually I have dyslexia. So for, for pronouncing last names for me sometimes is a real challenge. And so I appreciate your patience. And no worries. So you know, today's topic, which I think is it's, it's an exciting topic. Uh, it's going to get tons of listeners listening to it. I could just you know, know that they're going to click on it a lot. And is what makes people donate to a nonprofit? And that's really what our topic is today. And I know you spent so much, you know, a lot of time on this. I know it's, it's intriguing to you. It's certainly intriguing to me and it should be intriguing to a lot of nonprofits, you know, you know, because if you understand the psychology of why people donate, you can kind of figure out a, a really good program to, tap into that instinct, even though, according to what you're saying, it's an irrational decision. It doesn't make sense. That's right. That's right. And the answer to the question, you know, after doing tons of original research and performing lots of experiments is that there is no one single answer as to why people give. People give for a variety of different reasons. Some people give to make themselves feel better. Some people give 
for an opportunity to belong, to be part of something. Some people give towards impact. Some people give out of anger, right? And frustration. So the challenge is, is trying to make sure that you understand your unique organization and value proposition, and then aligning that with your ideal donors, expectations, concerns, and ingoing motivations. And that's really kind of what we've been trying to figure out how to do. So, I mean, from a, from a, smaller nonprofit standpoint, I guess it's always a great idea to have a conversation. Well, do people always give you the information about why they donated? They do not. And that is why what we've we've done over the last decade or so is use the web as a living laboratory to try to peer inside the minds of people by observing their behavior um, as they go through the process of interacting with the charity and then giving a donation. And I that's kind of like the focus of our research. So then it doesn't even make sense to um, to ask people why they donated? Well, you can. I mean, you can ask people um, their opinion, but oftentimes their behavior is in direct uh, contradiction to their actual opinion, right? So, so people, for example, people would say, well, I don't want you to send mail or I don't, I don't read direct mail. However, we know that, you know, people respond in very high numbers to direct mail solicitations. If, if they didn't, nonprofits would not do those types of activities anymore. So it's sometimes challenging. Yes. You know, asking people and doing primary research is helpful, but you always have to back that up with actually live market testing. Yeah. I I wasn't thinking so much, um, it makes sense. I can see in any business, you know, you ask somebody, well, how'd you find out about us? And depending on how quickly you, even if you ask them immediately, it's challenging sometimes for them to say, um, I kind of meant a little bit more about where someone just made a $10,000 donation and you say to them, you know, can I ask a bit what kind of triggered you to do this? And is that, is that response a little bit better than, than, um, is that is that is that more accurate? It's yeah. Some, sometimes uh, the the problem is is like you know because giving is an irrational behavior, even the donors themselves don't understand the reasons why they do what they do, and that's and that's where you know philanthropic psychology comes into play, where we have to try to take some of these different theories and then you know be able to see if we can validate them through people's behaviors. So when you did the. Um Twenty five hundred fundraising experiments. Mm-hmm. What came out of that that surprised you? Well, I want to give your audience some very practical things. So, so first and foremost, uh, this is going to sound very simplistic, but it's actually quite profound. Out of all of our testing research, one thing that really emerged is that people give to people. People don't give to websites. They don't give to email campaigns. They don't give to direct mail campaigns. People give to people. So the more that we can actually humanize our communications with folks, the more effective our fundraising is going to be. Let me give you a very practical example of this. And this is an experiment that we have run with dozens of different organizations. We've run it in different countries. We've run it in different languages. If you look at most nonprofit email solicitations, if you look at the email, right, it's got like lots of HTML, there's lots of graphics and images, there's big clickable buttons, there may be multiple conflicting calls to action throughout the copy. The copy even sounds like it's written from a professional copywriter because in many cases it in fact is. The problem is, is that when a potential donor sees that in their inbox, do you know what they see? They just see somebody trying to market to them. 
And yeah. people don't want to be marketed to, they want to be communicated with. So one simple thing for everybody listening to this call that they can test is strip away all that marketing veneer, get rid of the images, get rid of the graphics, get rid of the buttons and actually write a plain text email and write it as if you're writing from one you know, human to another human, one friend to another friend. And when we've tested that in, in our you know, controlled environments, we have found that that increases giving uh, response rates 300% or more in many cases. So, so simple things like that, that, you know, sometimes defy our conventional wisdom can make a big difference. Yeah. To, you know, to 25 years ago, it shows how old I am. Um, the, uh, you know, the big thing and the big stuff that was coming out was something called one-to-one marketing mm-hmm. where it was really about personalization. Now, certainly over those 25 years it, through technology, it's gotten much easier to try to think, make something more personal, but there's nothing more personal than a person's either voice or a message that's customized for each individual, correct? That's right. I mean, by nature, mass communications separates us from people. And, and just think of like some of the vernacular we use. We say email blast, right? You know, yeah. and uh, we call people targets and like, you know, all these things that just really don't align with the underlying philosophy or, or you know, even theology of one-to-one fundraising or communication. So that's really that the goal is to try to create communications that are seemingly one-to-one. Yeah, so would you think that the time that's where you do spend a lot of time um, is in deciding the right people to call based on, uh, like say the most obvious one would be, can this poor person afford to give our nonprofit a hundred thousand dollars, a million dollars, $10,000. Do you spend time more on the research side of it? Yeah. I mean, of course, prospect research is super important, especially as it relates to, um, you know, true one-to-one fundraising, like, you know, major gift fundraising, or if we're going and we're asking for a large sum of money. But in many cases, mass uh, fundraising, there isn't that same level of, you know, process that it happens on the front end. You know, it's like, I've got an email list and I'm just going to go blast out something to everybody and just, you know, see what happens. And it's just, it's just not as effective. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, um, I just happened to read the other day, you know, the, the, the number one, um, email quote unquote blasts a software is constant contact. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and they, I just read that they announced they're going to give their clients the ability to blast out text messages now. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh no, <laughs> that's going to make text messages not effective now, you know, because, you know, people kind of view their text masses. Uh, I do my text as, you know, personal. Sure. Yeah. You know. So, I mean, how would you go, how would you suggest that nonprofits go about using more personalized messages? What what are some ground rules that you think are important? Well, first and foremost, they have the, before they even consider sending anything to anybody, the organization should take a um, a hard look at identifying what is their unique value proposition. So, out of all of our testing, out of all of our research, the number one thing that we find that really moves the needle is how we articulate 
the value proposition for our organization. So what do I mean by value proposition? Simply, how do you answer this question? If I'm the ideal donor to, you know, blankety blank charity, why should I give to you rather than some other organization or not at all? That is a question that you have to anticipate and you have to be prepared to answer with a, you know, loose and compelling argument. If you don't have that, don't hit the send button. Yeah, what do you think it says about the nonprofit if they can't answer that very well? That is honestly a very common uh, problem. So we did a study a number of years ago um, called the Nonprofit um, Value Proposition Index Study. And what we did is something very simple and something anybody could do. We went to 125 different charitable organizations across the sector. Uh, and we contacted them four different ways. So we went to their website, found their 1-800 number. We called them on the phone. We said, hey, I'm thinking of giving a gift. Can you tell me why I should give a gift to you rather than some other organization or not all? And then we listened. We did the same thing via the contact us form or, or their general email. We sent them an email asking that question. We direct messaged them on social media, and then we looked at what their donation page had to say in terms of answering that specific question. What we found is a few things. Number one, nonprofits are not great at answering that question. Uh, in many cases, they speak with forked tongue. We would get completely different ins- answers depending on the channel that we actually reached out in. Uh, and in many cases, the organizations just did a poor job of getting back to us. I think a, a third of organizations never responded to our email and never responded to our direct message on social media. So if there's one piece of advice I could offer to any nonprofit organization is spend some time with your team, get them together in a room and get everybody to try to answer that question and then say, okay, well, how, how can we actually answer this with one voice? How can we have you know one uh, you know specific, clear message that we can articulate that is the reasons why somebody should give. And that's a good starting point for anybody. Yeah. I mean, the first thing I would do is if I was an executive director or a board member, I would go do those four things with my organization. That's right. And see what happens. Because I, I bet you any money, if you go to the executive director and you ask that question, that you probably get a better proportion of people who can articulate themselves. I'm not saying 100%, but you know, a better uh, response but as you go down the line in employees, and that's not the right way to put it, but people with different responsibilities, they may not be able to articulate the value proposition as well as the executive director or board person can yeah, as well. You'd be surprised when we did that study. What we found is actually, generally speaking, the people that answered the phone did a much better job of answering that that question than some of the more higher ups within the organization. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of, I think the problem is, is sometimes, you know, when you're, um, you're not used to answering that question. Right. And so, you know, maybe the executive director, they're, they're kind of thinking about the, the business holistically or the, or the organization holistically, they, they kind of lose touch with makes uh, of, of what makes it appealing, you know, to people at the retail level. Right. So, so that's, that's something that, to think about. Yeah. And I would think the value, I mean, the, the other thing about, about the value proposition too, I mean, I know it more from a business standpoint is, you know, it should be able to be said in a, like a sentence or two as well. Yeah. It, you know, what we've learned about the value proposition is that there's basically four key dimensions to it. 
Um, in order for it to have an effective value proposition, first and foremost, it has to have appeal. It has to be something that people like, that they want, that they want to see, you know, a change they want to be see made in the world or something that they you know care about. Number two, it has to be exclusive to your organization. If what it is you do is really appealing, but there's like 800 organizations that do the same exact thing, it dilutes the potency of the appeal. The third thing it has to have is credibility. People have to believe it. They have to understand that they can trust what you're saying is true, that the whatever type of you know um, impact you're going to deliver in the world is something that your organization is positioned well enough to do. And then finally, it has to be communicate communicated clearly, right? So clarity is the last piece of it. So that kind of gets directly to what you're just, you're talking about that people have to be able to clearly articulate this in a way that everybody can understand it. Yeah. I think I, I used to remember reading about also that there needs to be an emotional component as well, if you can. Yeah, absolutely. Again, because the part of the brain that is responsible for decision-making um, is a part of the brain that has zero capacity for language. So if all we're communicating is facts and figures and numbers and logical arguments, we're actually missing that part of the brain that really uh, is responsible for decision making. So you're and, exactly right. Yeah, and I, I would think too with like a nonprofit, it's I would actually think it's easier to communicate an emotional response than it is for a business because let's face it, I mean the the things that um, a nonprofit is solving is so much more significant than, you know, from an emotional standpoint, uh, a human standpoint, which is what emotions are, than a business kind of is. Would you agree with that or no? Yeah, no, that's true. And, you know, typically like our currency is our stories of impact or, you know, what it is that we're actually like achieving, like through our organization. So yes, many cases, it is easier to connect with that emotion side of things, but then you also have to rationalize, help the person rationalize the decision they're about to make, you know, through logic and reason. So it's not just one or the other; it's actually both of those things combined. Now, you you've written a number of books and, and articles and stuff like that. Is there one that kind of stood out to putting together your own um, value proposition? Yeah, I get into it in optimize your fundraising because it's such a you know big theme that's kind of. Uh, been woven through our research throughout the years and, you know, really kind of go through the process of, of how any organization can start to, you know, build an effective value proposition and then communicate it broadly. You know, the thing I would add too, is like over the last 25 years, the best work I think I ever did was um, we, there was this book called the inside advantage and it was written by a guy by the name of Robert Bloom who started, he started the largest advertising agency in the world called Publicis. Oh, yeah. and, and I met him and, and he actually consulted with us. Um, and he, you know, basically the inside advantage was about the idea of being able to define your culture so that you can then put it into a value proposition. And then therefore you could then come up with a, you know, he doesn't like this word, but a tagline, to kind of define your organization and that the important part of all this work that you do in, in value proposition and bring, coming up with a tagline and in uh, understanding your organization from an inside out standpoint is that it helps everybody in the organization get on the boat, so to speak, right? You all understand what you're doing. You all can articulate the, the, the mission, um, and what you're trying to do. And therefore, if you can articulate it, 
you can raise more money. You can um, you feel good, better about the company you're working for. You know what your company is is working for. You know it. it and and the, the his whole premise was, it's not the marketing message that you put out there that could be f- that some companies would put out that are fake. Right. It's just it's you know, and when you're talking about a huge company or a huge nonprofit, it's it was outsourced probably. Right. Right. Whereas with a smaller organization, it, it, that, that value proposition, if done by the whole team and if everybody understands it permeates the organization so that it builds the culture. And he was saying that the culture of, of, uh, coming up with a value proposition, uh, what it is, is more important than the actual telling of the message itself when you say from a marketing standpoint. And I thought that that was that work that that my company had done at the time was the best work that we had ever done. Hmm. And yeah, I think that's incredibly insightful. And honestly, I couldn't agree more. I mean, just thinking about my own organization, like values and culture is something that we have worked very, very hard to number one, codify. But then give people, you know, um, very practical handles so that they basically live out the value proposition every single day with how they interact with our clients, with each other, and with the larger nonprofit sector. So I, I think that that's, that's solid gold. <laughs> yeah, you know, what? Uh, whenever I talk to young people who are um, like asking me, uh, you know, what type of advice I would give them when they're going on interviews – and I know this is an indirect way of going to what I'm about to say, but I say to them, um, "What? ask the people in the interview what the culture of the company is going to be that you're going to be working for. Mm-hmm. And and that idea of culture is very foreign to a lot of people. Hmm. Like, and, and they don't really understand that a company or that a nonprofit actually has a culture. And I think the culture again fits into the value proposition because if you do the if you do the work right, to me, culture matches value proposition, and you know it should be incorporated in it anyway. I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think I think that um, when when culture is able to wrap their arms around the values of the organization and, and, and people are able to kind of embrace that. I think then every single person in your company becomes the manifestation of your value proposition, right? So it's, it's not something you have to like point to or write about or talk about it. Like people experience it. And that is so much more powerful than anything, any tagline that you can write or marketing campaign you can, you know, execute. Now, what else came out of that fundraising experiments, the 2,500 fundraising experiments? What else came out that was um, surprising to you? Yeah, I mean, there's one thing, and this is this might not be surprising. It's it's probably intuitive, but uh, just to give people a way to to uh, to give a label to it, um, there's psychological elements that like actually you know prohibit people from giving, like things that are like friction and anxiety that occurs during the giving process. So thinking about it from an online giving standpoint, when somebody has to go through and fill out multiple pieces of information in order to complete your donation or answer a whole bunch of questions they don't know the answers to, or which of these different gift designations do I want to like align my gift to? And I've got 300 choices. Those are things that add psychological resistance to them completing the transaction. It slows them down. So 
one of the things that we found through our testing work is that the more that we can eliminate or reduce the amount of friction in the giving process, the more effective our results will be. Um, yeah. Now, when you, you know, the, the listeners that we have that are listening to this, they're typically under $5 million in revenue. Um, do you think these – how would you say these rules we're talking about apply to a smaller nonprofit? Well, I mean, that that's um, that's really been the focus of a lot of our work through our Next After Institute. So about two years ago, we um, – we said, you know, we work with a lot of very large nonprofit organizations. They've got very large volumes of donors. They've got economies of scale. They give us enough data points where we can actually achieve statistical validity in our testing, which is what we need to, to validate our, our, you know, our research experiments. But smaller nonprofits don't have that. And so that's, that's why we've actually kind of like open sourced our entire library of tests so that the smaller organizations can learn from the bigger organizations. So a lot of things that we talked about here today about like people give to people and like reducing friction in the giving process and actually humanizing your communications. Those are things that we found to be universal principles that can apply to any organization of any size. Well, what if you've, um, but I, 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 I guess if you're an executive director listening to this today, like, wow, you know, now I got to come up, you know, really dive into the value proposition now I got to dive into this psychology of, um, uh, of uh, are we offering our clients too much options? Not going. I say clients. I don't know if that's the right. You know, donors. Right. Um, it, it seems a little overwhelming. It can be, and that's why I say if there's one thing to focus on is it's you know really getting clarity on your own value proposition. Because regardless of whether you're having a face-to-face conversation or you're emailing millions of people, if you don't have that, people will not give. Yeah, yeah. Now, I know you you work, of course, as a consultant. Um, is is a lot of times your assignments uh, working on uh, people's value proposition? That's usually like one of the first initiatives that we undertake. And we go through a bit of a value proposition workshop with the organization. We usually spend about a, a half day uh, where people uh, at various levels in the organization participate in that. Um, and, you know, we basically just try to get them to answer that question. Why should I give to you rather than someone else or not at all? And then we listen and we document every single reason that they give. And depending on how many people we talk to, we may come out of those you know, workshops with 50, 60, sometimes 100 or more claims of value. Now, usually, and, and hopefully, uh, those claims of value fit into similar buckets. But what's interesting is that everybody uses slightly different, you know, vernacular, different ways of actually expressing it. And so that's what really kind of then, um, you know, fuels a lot of our testing work is we try to take some of these different ways of you know, presenting this value proposition to the market. And then we use the data that we get back from the experiments to help us figure out, you know, what works and what doesn't. When you were doing the study um, of those 2,500 people, mm-hmm. did you already have a hunch when you went into it that the value proposition was going to be the, the the number one biggest issue? Um, yes and no. I, I guess, you know, we, we knew that the value proposition was really – important. We had no idea how significant though it would, it is in terms of actually like, you know, moving, uh, 
you know, people's giving. And the cool thing about the value proposition is that it affects two different levers of like, you know, revenue. Um, the first is whether or not people give. So that's, you know, conversion rate. But the second is how much they give. So like the average gift amount. So we find that when we communicate a forceful value proposition, not only do we get more people to say yes, but they say heck yes, and they give at a much higher rate than they would have in the past. And that's the cool advantage of being a nonprofit is that we don't have a fixed price, right? Our, our price is determined by our customers. Our donors decide how much they're going to give. And based on our research, the biggest thing that they use to make that decision is your value proposition. Wow. Wow. That's another reason to do it. Wow. it's amazing. You know, it all comes down to this thing. If I was an executive director right now, I'd probably spend all my time on the value proposition, just kind of get, not all my time, but all my extra time, of course. Right. <laughs> um, what else? I mean, what else um, do you often see when you go in to visit with clients? Okay, we talked about the value proposition. We talked about the, you know, try maybe limiting the amount of steps that someone has to go to to give and those type of things. What else would you say that you've kind of learned over your history and even through the the work that you've done through various surveys and stuff? Yeah, I, I think that the, the other major trend is that um, as an industry, we are really bad at customer service. Like we don't do a really good job of thanking our donors. We don't really get, do a good job to getting back to people in a timely fashion. The problem with that is that we're not just competing against other nonprofit organizations. We're competing against every other for-profit enterprise on planet Earth that is trying to part people from their money, Right. So if, you know, Amazon gets back to people like, you know, rapidly when they have a, an issue and we take a week to do so, that doesn't really bode well for <laughs> that interaction with the donor. So, so, you know, customer service and just really kind of like stewardship of those relationships is a huge area for opportunity improvement. And I think that's probably why we have such low donor retention rates in our industry is because we do a poor job of that. Yeah. You know, there was a, I, I did a really good podcast and I know this is a little different than from what you're saying about you know, the, the one-on-one, but there was a company out of Australia and I did a podcast with the owner of it and the company's called Bonjoro. It's B-O-N-J-O-R-O. And what they did was they they have a big presence in the United States of nonprofits that are using their their software and what the software made it uh, what made you be able to do is for you to easily take the videos that you're recording on your phone and upload and send it out to clients. Right. And and the way nonprofits were using it was they were using it to thank donors personally instead of like sending an email. You would and then they would using it to show them where their dollars went. You know, they actually, you know, this is how it helped this person and look what we built. And, you know, this, this is how it changed their lives. And I just want to thank you and, you know, showed a picture of the people that maybe they're helping as long as it was okay. And, you know, it, it was in an essence using technology that is supposed to be for mass produced, but then they kind of making it a little bit more personal. Exactly. Um, and I thought that was a very interesting concept and, and it seemed to be taking off out in the, in the United States as well. So, you know, how did you get involved in all this? <laughs> uh, like most people in the nonprofit sector, I took a very indirect path. So I, um, 
I started a business out of college. It was an interactive marketing company. I did that for about five years, uh, got bored with that. And then I went to work for a nonprofit organization uh, because I wanted to you know, do something that changed the world. Uh, I did that for a period of time. And then I discovered that there's basically, you know, these, you know, for lack of a better term, advertising agencies that work exclusively with nonprofits. And I was like, you know, I've always been more of a marketer. And so I gravitated towards that. I worked at a couple uh, different, uh, you know, uh, agencies and then uh, end up leaving to start next after when I became really just obsessed with trying to decode what works in digital fundraising. Yeah, cool. And and how long has next after been around? Uh, next after, I guess we're in our ninth year mm. operation. Mm-hmm. And and how have I think I know you mentioned it before, but how has the nonprofit world changed in the nine years that next after has been around? Well, um, you know, I'd say about, you know, 10, 10 or 12 years ago when I first came into the nonprofit space, digital was still kind of like a mystery, you know, like many nonprofit organizations were not really even sure, Hey, is this internet thing going to really last? Uh, I know it sounds silly to say, but that's, that was kind of like the, at least based on their behavior, uh, how they would approach it. I'd say that, um, that's changed a lot. I think a lot of people are now seeing that uh, it makes sense to start to um, develop a digital first strategy because it's so efficient, because it gives you you access to so much data that you did not have with other channels of communication. So I think that that's been a a huge shift. It's so challenging because I I know in my own company with financing solutions, it's hard to stay on top of all of it. I mean, you know, getting stuff on Facebook, getting stuff on Twitter, getting stuff on LinkedIn, getting stuff in our website, you know, getting stuff out to email. It's just, it, it get, I feel like the quality gets diluted. 100%. You know, and, yep. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the, the, one of the, the problems with, you know, digital marketing in particular is that because the barriers to entry are so low, it's yeah. led to the proliferation of really, really crappy digital marketing, right? So yeah. like anybody can just go blast something or post something on Twitter or, you know, throw something up on Facebook. And so they don't give it a lot of thought. It doesn't give it a lot of attention. And that's why it sucks so bad, right? And that's why the results aren't that great. But when you spend, you know, time actually like thinking about some of these things and being more purposeful and more, you know, strategic about these, you know, these opportunities, um, you know, it's it, it can become a complete game changer. Yeah, it's almost like to do less to do more. That's you know? it. right. That's you know, right. I'm thinking. I mean, that's what I'm thinking about right now. Yeah. So, well, Tim, listen, really great podcast today, and I really appreciate you coming on board um, to kind of talk to us about this really great insight. I, I love it when people can back up things with data. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's not just an impression; it's you can use data to support the theory and the you know the objective as well. So, you know, Tim, I, from you know, I just wanted to really thank you. And uh, if anybody wants to get a hold of Tim, certainly you know his company is next after. If you like today's podcast, please feel free to share it with a friend and also subscribe to your favorite podcasting app um, uh, through us for your favorite podcasting app. If, if you like today's podcast, please give us a review on your podcasting app and, and to help us get out the word out to others, the nonprofit MBA podcast, is becoming very, very popular. There are not a lot of, uh, content out there like this where we bring great guests like Tim out there. Um, and, um, you know, and of course, if you're looking for a line of credit for your nonprofit, 
you know, feel free to give us a call at 862-207-4118 or visit our website at nonprofitmbapodcast.com to learn more about financing solutions. Um, Tim, if, uh, if anybody wanted to get in contact with you, how, how would they go about doing that? Well, you can find all of our research um, and all of our information on our website at nextafter.com. Um, and there's a whole bunch of free resources for nonprofits. So if you haven't been there, go check it out. Um, and uh, thank you, Tim. And, you know, I always say this, I end my podcast with this, which was, is, you know, we we need these nonprofits. So we need all of you to do the great work that you're doing. You're making the world a better place. Uh, it's much appreciated. Um, certainly after 2020, I think, Tim, I hope you feel the same way that 2021 is going to be better. Yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's hope so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and let's keep working toward that direction anyway. So everyone keep doing what you're doing. It's much appreciated. Uh, Tim, thanks for coming on board and everybody have a fantastic 2021. Thanks, Steven. 